where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. Yeah, now with the fact that these lipid nanoparticles are going throughout your whole body, you know, they can cross the blood-brain barrier, they can go into your ovaries, they can go into your nervous tissue, they can go into your heart cells, right? And then they go into those cells and they start to express it. That's no longer favorable because now your immune system is very intelligent at how to identify those spike proteins and take out the cells that are expressing it. So if it's important tissue or in a sensitive place, that's an autoimmune response, right? If it's attacking your own healthy tissue, then that's not a good thing. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here, and today I am speaking with Deanna McLeod. Deanna, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you again. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I think that the last time we did a video together, you are your video is one of the higher percentages of videos that we've done. So I'm hoping that we're going to get all of those views again because I know you have a lot of information to share. Uh, mm -hmm. So everybody, uh, Deanna it runs an organization called COVID Sense, and uh, she was on Twitter a few weeks ago sharing some really important CDC information. And I said, hey, that sounds like we need to have a long conversation about that. And so um, Deanna and I were talking before we came on about which order we should talk about things. And we're going to go with her order because uh, she wants it to be that way. And I can't do anything about it. So uh, <laughs> uh, it's great to have you back. Let's dig right into the evidence. What are the what are the things that you want to talk about today? Um, yeah, well, Michael, one of the things that I think is on a lot of people's minds these days is do these Omicron boosters work? Um, you know, what's the data behind it? And, you know, there, we, the last time we were on together, we were talking about the phase three trials and we were talking about some of the flaws of the phase three trials, but at least there were phase three trials. <laughs> like at least we were going to decide that we would randomize and try and, you know, do some controlled analysis. Uh, but now, you know, the randomized trials are gone. And we just have, you know, these observational trials, which are, you know, where you follow a series of patients along and look at it and nothing's really controlled. So I'd, I'd really like to look at those because a lot of the conclusions are very strong. You know, of course, vaccines are safe and effective and the best way to protect you and your family is to get vaccinated. So, you know, how are they arriving at this in this Omicron era? Um, and so that's one of the things. And then the other thing too, is that uh, we'd, I'd, lo I'd love to take a closer look at myocarditis. Now, myocarditis is probably one of the most recognized side effects, and um, it would be good to see, uh, you know, we're, we're hearing things, and I think, you know, this is some of the stuff that we put up on Twitter was, you know, we're seeing the CDC saying that the rate of, in, of myocarditis from SARS-CoV-2 infections is higher than the rate of vaccination, and so you should get vaccinated to protect against COVID-19 and myocarditis. So is that true? And and if it is, you know, how did they come, arrive at that data? And I think that they even have meta-analyses now that are suggesting 
uh, that that might be true. So, you know, it would be probably be good to look at the data and see if there's any substance there. So I think those are the two topics of greatest interest to me that I, I would love to equip, you know, your viewership or is it listenership? I'm not sure uh, with some of the data so that they can make decisions for themselves and, and make informed choices. I think my audience like to go with the term hooligans or oh. fringe fringe minority. I don't know. No, uh, no, absolutely. Any right. either of those ter- terms work. Uh, let's get right into it because I know you've got some PowerPoints to share. So folks, um, I'm going to do my very best to just listen along and then maybe ask some clarifying questions. And Deanna, you have, you know, you have the PowerPoint. Go for it. Start leading us through. All right, let's do this. Um, so... The study title or the the presentation title is Omicron Boosters, the Five Fatal Study Flaws. So um, one of the things that I've noticed about uh, COVID-19 science is that it is super creative. um, And a lot of people, including many of the doctors and specialists, aren't really picking up on the subtleties in design. Uh, that might lead to um, favorable uh, conclusions, which is that vaccines are safe and effective and the best way to protect you and your family. So let's just take a look at the Omicron booster trials. And um, I started off this by noticing that NACI, um, you know, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, recommended booster dose uh, for the COVID-19 of the COVID-19 vaccine for all adults and adolescents and even children five to 11 years of age. So basically they're now recommending boosters, whatever is approved uh, for everybody right down to five years of age. So I think that that's actually pretty striking because um, we already know that children less than 18 years of age certainly are not at risk of COVID-19 and they're certainly not at risk of COVID-19 now after numerous boosters or numerous um you know, most of them had their primary series. Some have even been boosted already. Uh, and most of them have been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 and recovered at least twice. So the question is, you know, why, how, how many of these do we need and why do we need to keep going? And so um, we're going to take a look at these studies to figure this out. So um, the, the rage right now is the Omicron, Omicron boosters. And so in Canada, um, the Moderna booster is approved for anybody 18 years of, of age and older. And it's really important to note that that was approved for the BA1 Omicron variant. Um, whereas recently, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, the Pfizer booster has been uh, approved and it's for the BA4, BA5 variant. And what's really interesting is that the BA1, there's at least uh, a good a trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that I'm going to take apart. That we're going to look at together. But interestingly enough, uh, the Pfizer vaccine was approved for anybody 12 years and older, but there is no trial results for the BA4 or 5. Um, so that one was approved basically based on eight mice. Uh, and the fact that there is a trial that's pending for, uh, so there's a trial that's pending for the BA4 and 5 that hasn't been released yet. So they approved it before the release of any results for that particular uh, booster. And they basically inferred it from booster results from the BA1. Now, those two things are completely different. A BA4-5 booster and a BA1 booster are are completely different. Uh, And there's no reason to think that they're interchangeable. And yet, for whatever reason, Health Canada approved it and NACI recommended it without any clinical trial results. And so that's really important for anybody to know 
because the way that we figure out if something actually works or is safe is by actually testing it. Ideally, as we mentioned earlier, Michael, we want to test it in a randomized controlled trial. At the very least, you'd want to test it in a controlled cohort trial or even a cohort trial like the BA1 for Moderna, but certainly you need some clinical data and we don't have that for the Pfizer Omicron variant or booster at this point. So that's really super concerning. So Deanna, just before you go on, can you go back to that slide ahead or behind, sorry. So I'm just going to, just for all of us, you know, slow learners out there, you've just said that the results from the BA1 booster study outcomes, are those results based upon the nine mice, the eight mice? Yeah. Okay. So let's just go back and clarify that. So now the booster that was approved for Pfizer is the BA45 booster. Okay. Which means that it's got mRNA for the BA4 variant and the BA5 variant, in addition to the Wuhan original SARS-CoV-2 virus in it. Okay. Okay. So there's no study results on that, but there was a study that they did. Based okay, on for the BA one for a BA one booster that was never approved, and so they're using the the results for another booster to approve this new booster. Right. Hey friends, are you tired of having leftism ram down your throat everywhere you turn? Like you're just exhausted where you go into a business and they want to promote leftist ideas and causes to you all day long. I know I'm tired of this, and. You know, this is why we need to have new buying habits. So why are you buying coffee from companies that hate you and your freedoms? I I can think of the day that I stopped desiring to support Starbucks. It was two years ago. Well, look, Resistance Coffee is here for you. I was just talking to Nicole in our production studio. She really wants to drink Resistance Coffee, but she's not yet gone and bought Resistance Coffee. Well, look, you can enjoy their wonderful taste and their fresh roasted coffee, Nicole, with the knowledge that your money is not funding leftist causes. So in fact, folks, Resistance Coffee gives 10% of every purchase to organizations that are fighting for constitutional freedoms for Canadians. This is partly why we partnered with Resistance. They have been gracious to us from day one. So Resistance Coffee roasts specialty grade beans, which means you're getting high end quality coffee that's roasted fresh for you. So be done with stale grocery store coffee uh, or uh, picking up your $4 uh, coffee cup somewhere else. Support Canadian Freedoms. Go to resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC and join the resistance today. Nicole, go out and buy it today. Stop hesitating. Go online. You can do it. Resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC. So it's kind of like saying you know, I don't know, in my area, chemotherapy, like, you know, I'm going to use, I'm going to prove taxateer like this one drug based on the results of another drug. And just because they're both chemotherapy. Okay. Now, where does the, where does the, uh, where does the eight mice come in to play here? Uh, Is that the only study that they did on the B4, B5? Is that what we're talking about? That's right. You nailed it. Yep. So the only, the only data that we have on the BA4-5 that's published and available and what was used to approve it from Health Canada and, and recommend it by NACI, so these are all your regulatory bodies that we're supposed to be protecting us, was based on 
preclinical data based on eight mice. And so the last time we spoke, you brought this up, we were talking about clinical data and we were talking about like phase one, phase two, phase three being after preclinical data, right? So it was like, it was, it was pre-human yeah. trials. Then it was phase yeah. one, two, three of human trials. And yeah. we were concerned originally that they were skipping certainly phase three and part of, I think it was part of phase two. You can clarify that. But now what you're saying is for these new boosters, we are all the way back into uh, pre-human trials, mm -hmm. completely skipping phase one, two, and three of what would be normative. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're basing it. There's no human data. That's a good way to say it. So there's no idea. We have no way of knowing if it works in humans or is safe in humans because it's never been tested in humans. And, and most certainly what the normal standard would be, it had been tested for over 10 years in humans. We're now talking about no human data. So yeah. So before what you would do is you would have a good long run of preclinical data on animals. Mice are not the best candidates because they don't express ACE2 receptors. So that's a whole other conversation, right? Um, so you would do preclinical data on animals cell cultures, tissues, to make sure that it was super effective and super safe. And then you would give it the go for use in humans, because you don't really want to use something in humans unless you're pretty convinced that it's going to work and that it's safe. And then you carefully monitor it in humans through phase one and two studies to make sure that it's safe. And then you prove that it's safe in a phase three trial. So here we've skipped the phase three, we've skipped the phase two, we've skipped the phase one, and we're only looking at it in animal studies, preclinical studies in mice, which aren't even the best candidates for looking at this type of thing. So I guess what we're saying is that I'm not even sure what to say. It's we, de we don't we definitely can say that we don't know whether it's safe and effective. There's absolutely no way that anybody could support that assertion for sure in humans. Yeah, I think the word you were looking there for might be fraud. My words, not your words. Like this is just utter. Um, this is utter negligence. From yeah, it, yeah. Again, whenever our children see a vaccine commercial on television, um, you know, here's the thing: when you see drug commercials on TV, I've been saying this for two years. You see the drug commercial, and then you have the guy going. And remember, you have you have 15 minutes of, of warnings. COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah. Hey, everybody, let's go line dance. Let's go get our let's go get our COVID-19 and not a single warning. And yet we're talking mm -hmm. about something that is it's this is completely negligent. It certainly is not anywhere near standards of informed consent. OK, thank you. Please move on. Yeah, I, no rant, worries. Yeah. I know. What well, is pretty shocking, right? But let's just say that they did do a BA1 uh, study. And so what, what I have here is the BA1 study that was done or the BA1 booster study that was done for the Moderna. So the trial design for the Pfizer and the Moderna are identical. So Moderna was approved for BA1 and Pfizer was approved for BA4-5. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through, let's just pretend that Pfizer's data was available. Let's look at the trial design and see if they actually can support their conclusions based on the results of the trial. 
and whether, based on what we know from the trial, whether you as a parent, Michael, uh, or any of your viewers would actually want this for their child. So I've, I'm going to identify, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the flaws of the study. So the first one is with any type of study that you do, you ask a question. So the first flaw of this trial design is that they ask the wrong question. So now what they're asking, the question that they're asking is, um, does this Omicron BA1 booster neutralize or stop or prevent infection from BA1? So this is a little bit of a, a, a diagram that you can see here. And the yellow here is when BA1 was circulating. So you have the percentage that is circulating here, and then you've got the date. So it was circulating in November 2020. And it was out of circulation full force probably by the end of March. So we actually don't even have any Omicron BA1 circulating anymore. And so that's when the study was actually conducted, was during that time. So it would make sense that you would test a BA1 booster during a time when BA1 was circulating if we're going to argue that you need to have a custom booster that is going to be able to halt a particular variant. However, here is where we are now, we're past this, and this is this big pink swath here is BA5. So when this booster was actually um, approved right here was early September, and BA1 was no longer circulating and BA5 was circulating. So the BA1 booster is already obsolete based if, if we're going to go with their line of argument, which is that you need a custom booster in order to stop the SARS-CoV-2 virus from binding to your tissues. If this is the argument, and because a spike protein, um, the spike um, protein is, is mutating and therefore the only way that you can stop it is to actually custom bind it. If we're gonna use that line of inquiry, then this study is already obsolete. It is no longer a clinically relevant question. And so therefore we shouldn't look at this data anymore. Deanna, can you just clarify for me the difference between a wrong question and a wrong statement? So the, the question is what they're asking. Um, yeah. So what they should have been asking for today, where the BA5 variant is, is circulating is you know, does this vaccine stop the BA5 variant, right? Right. But the so, question so, so, yeah, they, so the question is, is does this stop the BA1, which is no longer in existence? Okay, I get it now. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, right. So basically based on their own line of argument and own line of reasoning within the context of their study, this is an obsolete study. And it's what we would call clinically irrelevant because it's asking a question that's no longer clinically relevant get it? I do get it. The question that I have for that would be, um, is, have they stepped over? Is that type of, is that, is that type of, is that type of thing common where someone does a study and you turn around and say, you know what, thanks for all your hard work, but that's no longer clinically relevant. Like, can they even find data that would support their claim at all? If they're asking the wrong question, like, is this effective? No. We don't know. It's not in circulation. No. Yeah. Right. So, okay. you know, the question right now is, is it going to neutralize the BA5 variant? But it was never designed to ask that question. 
Right. And the study wasn't okay. the study wasn't asking that question because the BA five variant didn't exist at that time. Got it. Okay. Right. So let's actually just take a, a moment and figure out what these bivalent Omicron boosters are. So we're going to be comparing this uh, Omicron booster to the original Wuhan booster. So the original Wuhan booster has the original mRNA, the mRNA from the original SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus that originated in Wuhan at 50 micrograms. So there's your little mRNA strand and you've got 50 micrograms within each lipid nanoparticle, ideally, if everything's going right. So then in the Omicron booster, you have a BA1 mRNA at 25 micrograms, and you also have the Wuhan HU1 mRNA at 25 micrograms. And in addition, the people who are receiving uh, this Omicron booster have already been naturally exposed to Omicron in Canada. Right. Right. So yep. we're now getting boosted for something. We've already already had exposure to Omicron, maybe not the BA1, but probably yes, to some degree, everybody's already had the BA1. And now we're going to be boosting for it. So what does that actually look like in a cell? So what that looks like is you have the Omicron lipid nano, the, the lipid nanoparticle coming in here, and you've got the mRNA for the BA1, you've got the mRNA for the Wuhan. And what can happen inside the cell is that this mRNA can interchange. So then what you're getting expressed on your cells is you're going to get a Wuhan HE1 spike protein expressed. You're going to get a recombinant spike protein expressed, and you're going to get Omicron BA1 spike protein expressed. So now, because you're giving two sets of mRNA, you can get any number of combinations of spike protein on the outside of your cells. Okay, now, th this is something that if if this isn't helpful for the conversation and it's a distraction, please just, uh, m you know, move forward. But as far as I understand from my research and talking to uh, different doctors, that means that now that that spike protein is expressed on the cell, my body then goes and attacks that cell and destroys that cell. And if I'm understanding you correctly, now that cell, it's like, uh, instead of putting one target on that cell, there's literally three targets on that cell. Am I, is that, yeah. is that too simplified you're, you're, or is that, am I understanding I think, that correctly? I think you're, you're heading in the right direction. And so what I wanted to show at the bottom here is what we call memory B and T cells. So every time you're infected and I'm going to call like even receiving a vaccine is being infected by the spike protein, right? Your it's, yeah. it's delivery mechanism is a vaccine, but you're still getting in, infected with a pathogen through the vaccine, right? It's like spike infiltrated. So once that happens, you've developed antibodies for it and they're stored in your B and T cells, right? So your T cells of memory of that, your B cells. So the B cells are going to develop antibodies. So you're, you're, the moment they see that, they're immediately going to start to develop these antibodies, which you already have, as I guess what we were trying to say, right? Everybody's pretty much been exposed to the Wuhan HE1 spike protein, either naturally or through vaccination. And pretty much everything, everybody has been exposed to Omicron. It was so highly transmissible at least once, if not twice. Right. So it's got B and T cells. So now the moment that those spike proteins show up on your cells, you're going to get a very, very strong immune response because you have lots of immune memory 
And it's even going to know where to look for it because if you've been vaccinated before, it's going to start to look on the the cells within your body rather than in your upper airways where a normal virus would come in, right? So, you know, and I was chatting with some of the immunologists at the CCCA and they were talking about how the Wuhan HE1 spike protein is going to be the dominant response because it's the one that they first saw. So that's going to probably be the dominant response. And then you're going to get the secondary response of all these recombinants and also the Omicron BA1 spike protein. So I don't, I mean, if I'm looking at this, I would basically say you're going to get more antibodies and you're probably going to get a stronger immune response, not because Omicron booster is better, but just because you have more pathogens being expressed. So that would be, if I were to be, if I were to posit a guess as to what these outcomes are going to look like, I would say that when you get the Omicron booster, you're going to get a stronger immune response than if you get just the Wuhan. But I don't think that that's, and that's not like, you don't need a degree for that. I think that's just common sense, right? More it pathogen, is, but when you say more better, immune response. When, when you say mm. better, um, I think what you mean by better is more powerful, not necessarily, yeah. not necessarily more complementary to my body. Is that? Well, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. So, if we were thinking about it as uh, an infection, and you needed to halt the infection, which we're not, because this is vaccine mediated, right? Yeah. Um, what What better would be would be you know uh, you'd have more memory and more intelligence as to fight off that new invader, right? So you would hope that you would have a more eloquent and refined immune response um, because your, your, your body's seen it before, right? And, and so and, it remembers how to fight this. Uh, and again, now the, the different... Yeah. Now with the fact that these lipid nanoparticles are going throughout your whole body. You know, they can cross the blood brain barrier. They can go into your ovaries. They can go into your nervous tissue. They can go into your heart cells, right? And then they go into those cells and they start to express it. That's no longer favorable because now your immune system is very intelligent at how to identify those spike proteins and take out the cells that are expressing it. So if it's important tissue or in a sensitive place, that's an autoimmune response, right? If it's attacking your own healthy tissue, then that's not a good thing. And yeah, and specifically, typically if I were to be getting the, um, the virus naturally, it would be located in the respiratory areas and my immune system, the 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 memory would be attacking something that is my my body is not manifesting it's a, it's attacking uh cells that are not my own cells expressing the virus am i correct in understanding that yeah well i think that viruses always infiltrate and you know reproduce in human cells but okay. those cells would be limited to the upper airways unless you're immunocompromised and that might get into the lower airways, right? Okay. And if very immunocompromised, it would get into your blood and circulate more widely and then get into some other cells that you wouldn't want to. But generally speaking, it'll be the battle will be fought in the mucosal lining of your upper airways, right? With cells that are dispensable, right? And, okay. and replaceable, unlike potentially nerve cells and heart cells, 
which we never want to get infected because they for sure for heart, you know, they're not replaceable. Once, once uh, attacked and scarred, then they no longer do their job and they aren't replaceable. That's yeah, that that's, that's the major concern. So thank you for clarifying that as a layman and, and trying to parse through all of these details uh, it can be quite difficult. So thank you for clarifying that for, for me and the listeners. Keep going. Yeah. You're doing a great job. Sorry. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So this is, this whole section here is called the mode of action. Like how does this actually work? And then from that, you actually say, well, what do you think that you'll expect? So I think, but we can, you know, what I would say as I would hazard to guess that I'm going to expect a stronger number of antibodies with the Omicron booster than I would with the Wuhan, just by the fact that we've got more varied mRNA and more potential targets. I'm just going to say that, and let's go see what they decided how, and how they designed their study. So what I've done here is I've done what I think would be the perfect design of a trial in order to be able to prove that the Omicron booster is better than the Wuhan booster. So here is, you know, I would have the study would be conducted during the time when BA5 is circulating, because then that's clinically relevant, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, sure, we would have, uh, you know, people, okay, look, maybe, maybe I, I have people greater than 12 years of age, but if we're going to be giving it to people that are five years of age and older, then we should probably have some five-year-olds in here too, right? We should probably right. test it before we give it to them. Um, now, I would want to know if they've had, if it's going to work if they've had a primary series. I'd want to know if it's, it would work if they had a primary and a Wuhan booster. I'd want to know if it's going to work if they had natural immunity, or maybe if they've had two episodes of COVID-19 and have two sets of natural immunity where they've been boosted naturally. I mean, if we were going to be speaking to whether this is appropriate for the whole population, then we basically need to have the whole population represented here. But what they did in this trial is they basically only looked at the primary Wuhan booster. So the only people that we can ever say that this is going to be beneficial for are people who've already had their primary series and have already had one booster and who haven't had a, COVID, a SARS-CoV-2 infection in more than three months. So they basically aren't accounting for naturally acquired immunity whatsoever. They also tested it whenever it was the BA1 circulating rather than the BA5. That's the one we're interested in, and that's the one that's no longer circulating. So we don't even think that, as we mentioned earlier, the, the results aren't even relevant anymore. They called it a phase two, three study, but in fact, it's actually not a phase two, three study. What it is, it's a double cohort study, which means that there's no randomization between the two arms. They just took people that were from the COVID COVE phase two, three study or the emergency access use pool, and they pooled them together and they just shunted them to either arm on their own sequentially. So we don't even know whether these two groups are randomized in terms of if there's any other factors, including naturally acquired immunity that might be different between the two of them, that would otherwise account for the, the differences in response. So right away from a design trial, it's not randomized, it's not controlled. Therefore, the best that we can do is say that it may be better than the other one or it may not because it's not a randomized trial. I would have wanted to see it compared to naturally acquired immunity um, or maybe even natural acquired immunity and treatment would have been an interesting question. But this trial is really only looks at it between the Omicron booster 
and the Wuhan booster. It doesn't tell you anything to do whether natural acquired immunity would even, even be better than the Omicron booster. And the other thing it doesn't tell us is it doesn't tell us what happens if you get the booster and then you have natural exposure afterwards, because there's a lot of people who get a lot sicker after they've been boosted. And so it doesn't actually tell us about that whatsoever. So really, the only thing that this study actually tells us about is people who've already had their primary booster, who've had a Wuhan booster, who are not pregnant, who are older than 12 years old. And it doesn't tell us definitively whether one is better than the other. It just compares two cohorts. And it's irrelevant because it was based on the BA1. Are you with me? I continue to be in shock. So it, so when they say it's safe or when they make a declaration, and I think you'll likely get to that, they, they're, they're, they're making only a comparative statement to one or the other. They're not actually making, they're, they're making no declarative statement that, that the actual individual out there would equate with the word safe. They, they, right. They're, they're basically okay. going to make a comparison that says, is the Omicron safer than the Wuhan booster? Right. 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 And so that's all where we the know. Wu- is one so where the Wuhan, and, and, and again, uh, just to get my terms right, the Wuhan booster, meaning series one and two, the primary series or the third? Yeah. The third, like the, the, any of anything that they would have called a booster. So Which beyond the first the two. Yeah. Yeah. So we're now so talking about people just, who have had three injections. And, and they're going for their fourth. And they're going for the fourth. And these people are saying that comparatively is the fourth safer than the third. When you and I have already anal- analyzed that so many studies have been skipped that to even say the third is safe is ridiculous on its face. Now you're saying this is safe simply because it's safer than the thing that we already can't tell you is safe. Okay. That's clear. I think so, everybody understands. Yeah, so now. what they're saying is if you're going to get the fourth, is it safer to get the original Wuhan again, or should you get this new up-to-date designer Omicron booster? Got so it. it's comparing a fourth and a fourth. I don't know if you're types. trying to use the word designer in the sense of like designer clothes <laughs> and if it's literally just what they're doing to market it, but I, I get I, I, the special booster. Okay, go for it. The special, the highly designed, the new up-to-date, all yeah. these fantastic words. Bell bottoms right, so are coming back assess- in, just so you know. I know. Oh, again? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so flaw number two is they assess the wrong endpoint. And so a lot of people don't really understand what an endpoint is, but it's basically the measure that you're using uh, for what you want to avoid, right? So every time they talk about getting boosted, they say, you know, they can't say that it stops transmission, right? They can't say that it stops infection because those two things have been disproven. So they basically say, oh, it prevents severe COVID-19 outcomes, you know, for instance, hospitalization or death, right? So if I were designing my trial, I would probably have hospitalization and death as my endpoint, right? So I'd compare my Omicron to my you know, Wuhan. We already talked about how more complex my design would be. But 
And at the very least, I would probably want to study about 50,000 people because I know that there are rare side effects. Now, that's very, very well established, right? We have got autoimmune, we've got myocarditis, we've got neurological side effects. So we know that these things cause rare side effects. So I would want to know to what degree, right? So I'd want a nice, you know, large sample size. And I'd also want it to go on for at least a couple of years because I'm noticing that you know, they're saying that these this immunity wanes, right? How much does it wane? And what are the long term implications of waning immunity? And does my immunity ever kick back again? So I'd really want to have at least a two year follow up. And of course, also to know about safety issues, it might go on for a little bit of time. So this is how they designed it. So instead of looking at hospitalizations and death, they looked at something called neutralizing antibody levels for BA1. And that's like a, a whole mouthful. But basically, they, it means that the antibody's ability to, in, to bind to the spike protein so that it interferes with the binding of the, the spike protein to the ACE2 receptor. Bottom line is it is a, a measure of, of preventing the virus from penetrating human cells. Uh, and so what they'll do is they'll take the blood of somebody who's been boosted and they'll put it in a Petri disc and they'll, they'll create these pseudoviruses that have, you know, that's the, similar to a BA1 variant. And if it's able to, to stop it from penetrating cells, uh, then it's basically called, it's neutralized. And so they looked at neutralizing antibody levels for BA1. And this is what they call a surrogate endpoint. And a surrogate just means it's an endpoint that you measure now that points to another endpoint later. So I think what they're going to try and argue is that if you have higher neutralizing antibody levels, then that means that you're going to have less infection and less infection also meaning less hospitalization and death. So it's a surrogate. Now, in order to use a surrogate in a clinical trial in any other setting, you actually have to validate that surrogate. And it's a very complex process. And to my knowledge, although they've thought that there's an association between neutralizing antibody levels and prevention of infection, that actually hasn't been validated. Uh, and so that's something that we need to be concerned about. In terms of the size of the trial, 50,000 is my number. Their number is 819. So we have to really notice that with 819 people, we can't possibly get a good safety assessment. So what they're saying is they're going to be giving us a fourth shot of these injections, and they're not going to be uh, able to appropriately measure safety because of the sample size. And instead of looking at it for two years, they looked at it for 1.8 months. So again, just a very, very short window. And the benefit of a really short window like this is if there's any long-term safety issues, the study won't pick it up. And if the vaccine efficacy wanes over time, the study won't pick it up so that you can conclude with confidence that whatever endpoints, you know, if it, if it, if it does, you know, uh, seem to suggest a greater immunity, you can say it's immune. And if it doesn't, if you don't pick up any safety issues, then you can say it's safe. So in the absence of testing, they can make these claims without any proof otherwise which is not really the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to be able, you're supposed to test to the level that you can make an assertion and support it. So the, the major, the second major flaw of this is that they actually use neutralizing antibody levels instead of BA1. And I'm just gonna hop over to this slide here. This is their justification. This is from the text. It says neutralizing antibody responses have been used to infer 
COVID-19 vaccine efficacy. They're not actually saying it's a, it's a good surrogate or an established surrogate or a valid surrogate. They're just saying, oh, somebody used it once before, so we'll use it in our trial. And I just want to <laughs> highlight here that the FDA says that antibody testing is not currently recommended to assess immunity after COVID-19 vaccination, right? So the FDA and the CDC both say that this is not a valid test. And so you should not use it to measure immunity. And yet they've approved this booster based on that particular endpoint. You know, folks, today in our episode, we were talking about all of the monetary incentives that people have to lie to you. And um, what we're trying to do in many situations is dig for the truth. And I want to take a moment to tell you about my friends at Rocklink Investment Partners. The team at Rocklink doesn't invest your money to satisfy a woke ESG goal or fall in line with the World Economic Forum. They invest in great businesses that will protect and grow your wealth the old-fashioned way. Get out of mainstream money and give the freedom lovers at Rocklink a call at 905-631-5462 and send them an email at info at rocklinkwithac.com. That's info at rocklinkwithac.com. Dot com. So Crazy. this would be FDA and CDC American bodies. And then in Canada, yeah, F Canada is ignoring that and approving these vaccines, even though they're saying the study, like they're, they're basically saying this is not a, a valid way to, to test effectiveness. Am I, am That's I, right. the, yeah. So two American so the, organizations, which yeah. again we're we're struggling with them as as is, but they're 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 saying this is not correct. They used to oh, they right. used to be they used to be the authorities that everybody in the world would defer to, including yeah. our Canadian regulatory agencies, right? And they are continuing. And the FDA can, the FDA went ahead and approved it the boosters based on that endpoint, even though their own guidance says that that's an invalid endpoint. And the CDC so, went on to recommend these boosters, even though their own guidance says that it's an invalid endpoint. I just want to take a really quick minute to tell everybody to go share this video with every doctor and nurse you know. Uh, Deanna, I'm just so thankful for the oodles of, I know that that's such a technical term, the oodles uh, amount of work that you have done on this. Um, but everybody, you need to go and share this with people who have been hemming and hawing. And basically, we are seeing people suffer exactly the way that Deanne is talking about, where they have a they have an they're out in the community getting infected with COVID nineteen and having a very significant response to that. And all of the while, they're continuing along with these with these boosters, and you know, at, at very least help people get thinking about this because Deanna is showing you clearly the um, fatal flaws. You, you, you say it in right, right in your, right in your presentation. These are fatal flaws that anybody, I don't understand all the intricacies that you're explaining because it's hard to get your head around if, if you're not in this world. But every single time you speak, I go, this is what informed consent is about so that I can go mm -hmm. and learn mm -hmm. from somebody, the things that I don't know and get corrected on the things that I might not quite fully understand. And then come to my own medical decision about what I'm going to inject in my body. And 
when you see the FDA and the CDC saying these are not recommended and then Health Canada and um, approving these boosters based upon these studies, it's 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 deceptive right on his face. Go, go ahead, Deanna. I'm sorry. I just needed to, you know, this is going to be a long yeah. interview, everybody. I think that's what I was telling every get home. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a long interview, be a long, yeah, but it's going it, to be worthwhile. It's going to be worthwhile. And people who understand these technical terms need to hear them. These doctors who continue to struggle to understand, they need to hear Deanna's voice right now. So share this video, please. With Yeah. You know, Michael, just a, just a quick note too is that you know our organization i'm speaking i'm representing a team of researchers you know my company is called kaleidoscope strategic and we actually work with clinicians you know we've been working with them for 22 years you know sifting through studies evaluating studies weighing evidence with them so that they can make sound clinical decision or sound clinical recommendations in the in the realm of cancer research and treatment so we we know this stuff. I mean, we do it every day. So, you know, it, it comes as second nature to us so we can identify the flaws. And I think that anybody who is making an informed choice about these needs to actually understand what the studies say. And because the um, doctors in Canada are required to follow the guidance from NASI, uh, they're not allowed to actually speak up. They're A, not provided with the intricacies and details of the studies to a degree that allows them to interpret them. And B, they're actually forbidden by their colleges to go counter narrative and to suggest something otherwise. It's a little bit less now, but I mean, that is still in place. There's still been censorship in that area. So, you know, I know that a lot of the doctors that I would work with if they actually knew about the details of these studies, there's no way that they would recommend them for their, their, their patients. Cause I know, I just know how doctors are. And, and it's likely because they've either been told that they can't do it or they haven't been provided a sufficient amount of details. So a really great service would be for, you know, people in your audience to actually take this data and to bring it to the doctors and allow them to walk through the trials in a sufficient level of detail in order to be able to say, oh my goodness, you're right. These aren't really representative and I can't actually in confidence recommend these as safe and effective. I totally agree. And just, just to keep our readers uh, listening uh, about uh, really infor important information. What you just said about the regulatory bodies, it's still on the College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, about the possibility of treating vaccine-hesitant individuals uh, with, um, with, with drugs and then mm -hmm. specifically, specifically not enabling vaccine hesitancy, not enabling that behavior by granting medical exemptions. So still on the college's website, they've they've gone so far to say that if someone is struggling with anxiety towards vaccination, you can. The, the, um, I always get the the name wrong. I think it's psychotropic medication is the terminology mm. on their website. So that censorship is real, and they're now even empowering physicians to say, "Well, look, if someone's super nervous." Just uh, maybe, maybe you need to really help them with another type of medication. So it's it's a real problem. And and Deanna, that's again why I was saying to my listeners, please share this video. If if we can get the percentage of this video being listened to, fifteen to twenty percent from 
doctors because you've taken your phone in and shoved it in their face and said, I love you. Please listen to this. Deanna is showing that technical information that they need to hear that they that they need to hear. <clears throat> okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we do have a lot of material to get through. So maybe we'll just kind of start flipping along. So they misinterpreted infectiveness. So again, their whole body, their whole study was based on this whole idea that you'll get these neutralizing antibody levels, right? So they take the blood of somebody who's been exposed or have been vaccinated, they put it in a dish, you know, and if it's able to, uh, if the, the antibodies that have been produced in that person's blood are able to neutralize um, a, a, a pseudovirus with a BA1 expression, for instance, then we'll call it neutralized. So it blocks it from binding to the ACE2 receptor. So in this study, this is what they did. I'm going to focus in on, on this middle panel here because most of the patients, greater than 78% of the people in this particular um, study were in this cohort. So it's people who haven't had a previous infection in the last three months. Okay, it doesn't mean that they haven't been infected previously, just in the last three months. And here's that booster arm. So when they gave, you know, before they gave the, the booster and then after, lo and behold, guess what? You get higher neutralizing antibody levels. And you do that because you've basically uh, expressed a pathogen and your body has memory of that. And now it's mounting an immune response. So what this really means is that your body has now been introduced to a pathogen and it's mounted an immune response. You've been exposed to uh, a pathogen, a virus, something that makes you sick or a vaccine in this case. And here's the Omicron pre-booster and post-booster. And lo and behold, guess what? Remember how we were saying that if you had multiple mRNA strands and multiple types of spike protein that you'd get more neutralizing antibodies? Well, lo and behold, you do have a slightly higher level of neutralizing antibodies here. And when you know their study design was that they would compare the neutralizing antibodies here to here. And if this was higher, then they would basically say, oh, the Omicron booster is better than the Wuhan booster. So that's the endpoint of their trial. That's ultimately what it is. So their conclusion is that the Omicron booster is better than the Wuhan booster because it produced slightly more elevated numbers of antibodies when it was expo- exposed to the pathogens in, that were delivered via the vaccine. So do you think that that means that the Omicron is better than the Wuhan or that you've been more infected? Is this a a sign of prevention of infection or does this just mean that, oh, wow, look at that. You've been infected. Right. I am trying to understand if if this is statistically negligible information even based upon what you're showing. Yeah. That's kind of something that I was thinking about when you showed this. I think, but, yeah, I think that's a good point too, is the net difference isn't that big, right? So even if it is statistically significant, if you had a highly sensitive statistical test, right? Is it clinically relevant is the question of the day. Is is the differences meaningful? And does it make a difference clinically in the sense of prevention of infection? That's really what we need to ask ourselves. But the study so is they, going to be positive. They're going to say that this is a positive study and that they've proven that the Omicron booster is better than the Wuhan booster because you have higher neutralizing, higher levels of neutralizing antibodies, which simply could just simply mean that it has a stronger, you've been, it, it was more infective in the sense that it, it, it was a, a, a it greater infected you to a greater degree. 
something like that. You know what I mean? You had to fight harder to fight it off because you've got more pathogens, right? So wow. it could just be a, a secondary result of having more pathogens. And we know that that's, the, that's true because you could get the Wuhan, you can get the Omicron, and you can get it combinations, right? Right. So they're, they're saying, oh, higher levels equals more protection. But we're saying higher levels just means more infection. Yeah. Right? We, so they're... It, even, even in there, if I'm trying to understand this, it seems that you're saying that the blood neutralizes to a greater effect. So is that basically what's being demonstrated here is that there is more of the pathogens in the blood, like not the pathogens, that's the wrong word, more of the antibodies in the blood. Is that what they're measuring right here? Yeah. Is that? That's the, this is the net difference here, right? right? They're basically saying you get slightly more higher levels of these neutralizing antibodies. And they're right. assuming that that's going to mean protection. But what I think that really means is just higher infection. Right. Right. And yes. what they did do is they, they did a, what they called an exploratory endpoint, which, which means you really can't conclude anything from this. It's just something that they decided to explore while they're doing the study. This was their primary endpoint. So this is all that they can conclude. Um, so really from this study, what we can conclude is that there were higher levels of neutralizing antibodies, but we can't conclude anything about whether it's more protection, whether it's going to prevent infection. And in fact, I just want to show you this, their exploratory endpoint was rates of infection. And in the Wuhan arm, 1.5% of the people who got the booster were infected within about 1.8 months after, median 1.8 months after they uh, the study started. And double the number of people were infected by COVID-19 in the Omicron arm. So that means that it's 100% less effective in terms of prevention of infection based on their own results. So what they're saying is, is that the, the immune system mounted a greater response. We've said, hey, that's not necessarily a good thing because if, if you're now traveling into different areas of the body and the immune system is attacking different cells within the body, that's not necessarily a positive thing that your that your body has this heightened response they're saying it is and then mm -hmm. despite them saying that their own material is then revealing that there was double the was, almost double the infection rate yeah so it's negative in fact like it's negative effectiveness right so they're yeah. concluding that it's positive because the neutralizing antibodies but actually when you look at a clinically meaningful endpoint like infection which is the minimally clinically meaningful in point, right? Yes. Hospitalization and death are the one that we're really interested in. We see that it's actually doing the opposite effect. It's actually causing more infection. There's more infection on the Omicron arm than there was on the, the booster arm. So okay, keep going. That's what, when, when I say it's misinterpreted effectiveness, it means that they're calling neutralizing antibodies, which aren't even a clinical endpoint effectiveness, whereas really effectiveness is infection rates. And here the infection rates are higher with Omicron booster than not. So you're more likely to get infected if you get it than if you don't, than if you get the Wuhan booster. I think the thing that I'm having a hard time understanding is that it seems so ridiculous. Like Deanna, I know that, you know, that this might be a, it's, it's, this is probably a terrible analogy, but based upon what we've been 
talking about and you know like like you talk about the endpoint it almost seems like they're saying well look it works because we injected you and now there are more landmines in your body than there weren't landmines and we're going well wait a more minute more explosions more explosions means more protection <laughs> right and we're saying that's not necessarily true that's not necessarily good it depends on where the explosions are and it depends on how what the explosions explode and like is it is it that simple like that that is that is that analogy at all on par for they're just saying hey great we got a lot of we we got we got a lot of ammunition there's a lot of ammunition in the room that's great and we're going well wait a minute a, a lot of ammunition is not necessarily good if it's exploding randomly you can't aim yeah right. you can't okay. aim you don't have the right target all of these okay. things right but anyways i think you know just i mean the height of irony for me was this this announcement by Rochelle Walensky that she got her Omicron booster and then got COVID-19, right? Right afterwards. So, I mean, she, the head of the CDC, is living uh, a living example of the results of her own trial, right? She got COVID-19, she got the booster, she got the antibodies, up, and then she got COVID-19 because you're twice as likely to get it now if you've got the booster, Right. And the iron, it was even funnier this morning when I was reading the headlines. And not only that, but she took Paxlovid and then 10 days later got a rebound and got COVID-19 again. <laughs> I I have to admit, I'm always surprised when they report it. Like if I was a, if I was a missionary who didn't really believe that Jesus was the way, the truth and the life, you would think that I wouldn't tell people that that's what I actually thought. Like I, I, I still don't understand how. Or no, like it's like blind faith because she still believes in it. She's still going to prove, like, yes, take this. It's going to prevent infection, right? Oh, what do you know? <laughs> yeah, infected. Like, I don't know. Yeah, where's the integrity, right? Like, where's it's it's so hypocritical, you know? Look, I'm living proof of the opposite, right? Anyways, yeah. I'm not sure how she is, to your point, I don't know how this encourages vaccine confidence if you're the head and you take your booster and you get COVID-19 right afterwards, or then take Paxlovid, which is the only antiviral that you recommend, and then get a rebound case. They call it rebound, but it's basically COVID-19 again, right? Like, didn't anybody tell her that if if she wanted to avoid getting sick she probably shouldn't go and be around a whole bunch of sick people especially after she made an announcement of the effectiveness of the vaccine like i, I just sorry there's just ironies and funnies go ahead go ahead keep going I'm, I'm slowing you down all right so they misrepresented safety so um remember we've always heard the slogan safe and effective and one of the things that i thought was really interesting about this particular study is that the company is being very, very careful with their wording now. And you'll hear safe and effective come out of the, the um, public health agencies, uh, but you won't hear it coming from the, the, com the companies themselves because they're still liable for fraud, right? So if they misstate something, then they could get still get sued even if they're indemnified right now. So let's just look at how they talked about safety in this study. It says safety and reactogenicity were similar with the two boosters. And then here in the discussion, it says safety and reactogenicity profile was similar 
to that of the prototype 50 microgram da 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 booster. So what they're really only doing is doing comparative safety statements. And they're basically saying this booster is not safe per se, it's just as safe as the other booster. So let's just go take a look, right? So they're, not all, they're no longer claiming that it's full on safe. That's what my point is. So let's just go look and see how safe the other booster was. So this is a cohort, it's a CDC study in, in persons aged 12 to 17 years, uh, the end of December, early 2022 in February, and it's a CDC analysis in the COVID-19 uh, vaccine and booster. So here, this shot is the primary series. So the first injection you get, 60% of the people who got that injection who are aged 12 to 17 years, there's 60, 60% about, um, got some, some sort of systemic reaction. And I'm just going to interpret what a systemic reaction means. It means a COVID-like symptom. You can't call it a COVID symptom because it isn't from COVID. It's just from the spike protein part of the, the virus that your body is now producing. So I'm going to call it COVID-like, but it's like getting COVID. So, you know, except for testing positive, 60% of them had some sort of COVID-like symptoms. When they got the second shot, 75%, more than 75% got COVID-like symptoms. And when you got the booster, 75% got COVID-like symptoms. So basically, if, if you, you could fabricate a positive PCR test, you would say that after each of these injections, between 60 and 75% of people get COVID. But you can't call it COVID because you don't have a positive PCR test for the full virus because you've only given them the spike protein. But of particular interest here, this is the booster. Remember, this is what we're comparing it to. 26% um, of the kids who got this booster were unable to perform their daily activities. They were so sick that they couldn't do what they needed to do that day. 20% were unable to go to school or work for a week following the injection. And 1% of them needed medical care. So the reason why they're no longer saying that this is safe is because at least a fifth of them, if not almost a third, um, what is it, 12, yeah, 20% is about a fifth, are getting severe adverse reactions to this particular booster. So whenever they say it's just as safe as the booster, what they're really saying is it's not safe at all. But they can't, they don't want to, so they're no longer making safety statements in these paper now. Can you just explain again, yeah, the, the first two columns there. So the, the first two columns are the, what they're... This one? So these yeah, are any I'm, systemic reactions, the first dose, the second dose, and the booster. Okay, right. Okay, so, okay, that's fair. So the reality is that uh, the screen is just small enough while we're recording here that I can't see it as big as everybody at home is going to be able to see it. So when you're talking about the comparative studies, we're talking about the first, second, and third in e the, all those columns, which as I am looking at it, you're, we are seeing actually the third column being greater or on par in certain areas and then less in other areas. Am I, so am I right? So it's about equal whenever it's equal for Yeah. So the booster is similar to the second dose for any type of systemic reaction. 
But when it comes to things like unable to go to school, it's significantly higher. So people are so sick that they can't get to school. Like the, the adverse reaction, these COVID-like symptoms are so strong that they can't, they're measuring it for a week following the vaccine and 20% of them can't go to school or work following their vaccination. So, so when they say it's as, so when they say comparatively it's as safe, are they only reporting on one of these lines that is on par and ignoring the, one of the lines that we would think would be the most important line? Yeah. So what they're, what they're basically saying, they're going to, they're going to make a relative statement for us of one booster versus the other, which is the data that they have in their trial. But we need to know what that actually means in real life. Right. Okay. So this study that I'm showing you is this is a real world study that shows that when they're actually getting it in, in clinic, when they actually get these boosters, what this really means is that 20% of them can't go about, they can't get to school or work after they get this thing. So when they're saying the Omicron booster is just as good, it means that 20% probably can't go to school or work following it. Right. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. So this, this study that you're showing everybody here is the original study of what they're comparing it to. I'm sorry, Deanna, yeah, I, I got a little bit lost fair. in that. So that, that's fair. No, this is context. Yeah. So because they're going to make a relative statement, you know, it's relative to something else. And we want to know, well, how is that compared to the first dose or the second dose? You know, what does that look like in real life? And that's what this study shows. Okay. So everybody at home, sorry, I got lost there, but now I understand it. So Tiana, you're literally saying that if you look at the new booster, they're saying it's as safe as this chart in front of me and this chart in front of me records... Circles. Yeah, this chart in front of me records some really bad information. Yeah, a lot like, of severe like, adverse reactions. Yeah, something that as a parent, I would never say that that's, tol that's tolerable. Yeah, that's not safe. Right. 20%. But it's as I, safe. So it's, just, it's, as it's as safe. safe. So, so if you... It's as safe if, as the unsafe thing. <laughs> right, exactly. So if you want to go so play the phrase of blame, that's as safe as walking across open jackknives. Okay, we've got it. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing too, that I really want to emphasize is the manner in which they, they, they looked at this stuff. So we've already talked about the fact that the study went on for 1.5 months, and they looked at immunogenicity, which is neutralizing antibody levels. But interestingly enough, instead of looking at safety for that full time, they only look at safety for seven days. Right. So normal studies should look at it for the whole study time, because the longer you look, the more you'll find. Right. And therefore, you'll be able to be assured that it's safe. But in fact, they only ever look at it for seven days, which is actually pretty crazy because you don't know if these these reactions are going away or staying or you don't know what's happening after the seven days. It's a big question mark. And then they looked at unsolicited adverse events for 28 days. Unsolicited adverse events just means that they give you a little diary and they say, if there's anything that's, you know, untoward that happens, just write it here. So at least they looked at that for a little bit longer. But interestingly enough, for these COVID-like symptoms, you know, headache is one of them, for instance. You know, I knew somebody who got their, their primary, their second dose of their vaccine and they had a headache for six months. Now, it would show up as a headache for seven days here, but nobody would ever know that it went on for six months because they're not assessing it that long. So these studies are under-reporting safety, likely, because they're not assessing it long enough. Right. Okay. 
So even with this very short window of looking at safety, this is the bar chart that's in the paper. And if you see here, remember that bar chart that we looked at before, anybody with systemic reactions, right? 70% of them, lo and behold, got COVID-like symptoms. See the COVID-like symptoms? Fever, headache, fatigue, myalgia, arthralgia, nausea, vomiting, and chills. So these are the very symptoms that we're looking to avoid. In fact, the CDC's definition of COVID is one of these symptoms and a positive PCR test. So the whole thing that this whole thing is, is designed to avoid is to have one of those symptoms and a positive PCR test, right? So from a clinical standpoint, the clinical burden is all of these symptoms. And yet with each vaccine, with these boosters, you know, the Wuhan booster is 66% and the Omicron is 70.3%, we're actually getting this the uh, very high level of disease burden, similar to what we're trying to avoid. So if we were to just omit the PCR test from the CDC definition, we would say following the vaccine, the Omicron booster, 70% of people get COVID-like sickness. Wow. Okay. And it means, you know, fever, headache, fatigue, myalgia, arthralgia, nausea, and vomiting. If you were to use the COVID definition, about 45% would get COVID. If you, if you just adjusted the PCR test to test for the pathogen, which is the spike protein. Um, so, I think the big take home here is that it, we've got some sort of dichotomy in our minds, whereas if it's, if it's COVID-like symptoms delivered via, you know, with, from the spike protein delivered via virus, it's bad. But if it's COVID-like symptoms delivered via vaccine, then it's perfectly fine. But I think that we've got some sort of disconnect there. I think we have to be, we have to have some sort of integrity and say, either these symptoms are bad or they're good but we can't play it both ways. And that's what they're doing in this particular thing. So they're, so they're saying that this is safe or as safe as the booster, <laughs> but neither of them by any definition would be safe. And I just wanna show you what these orange things are. So in cancer research, we always keep our eye out for grade three and four toxicity. So grade three and four toxicity are the ones that are gonna make you feel really, really bad. And you never really want to have any grade three toxicity in healthy people because there's no reason, unless there's a really good reason, like they have cancer, you'd accept it. But for, you know, something that they don't need and that isn't going to help them or might cause more infection, you certainly don't need it. So here, the actual study said that 5.5% of people are going to get grade three toxicity, which means that now these are healthy people. They're not going to be able to go about their daily activity based on the results of this. So 5.5%, that's 550 out of every 100,000 people who get these Omicron boosters are going to be so sick that they can't get out of bed and go about their daily activities. That's pretty bad. And so again, when we're, when, when they're, when they're presenting this, they're not presenting, there are we still in the comparative representation where they're trying to tell us the difference between the two lines there or are we now yeah. like you just said where they are actually saying no 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 70 percent of people get covid like symptoms and that's good um well can you just i mean parse it I out think for that, me yeah so 
So here, here's the two cohorts. You've got your Wuhan booster and you've got your Omicron booster. And you can right. see here that, you know, you got more infection. We already talked about that with the Omicron booster. And now you can see here that we've got more adverse reactions too, right? Right. The 70.3%. And they're COVID-like symptoms. So you may as well call it COVID, but from a clinical standpoint, right? Right. So, and 5.5% of these are really, really bad. That's this orange stuff. And so they're just basically saying, well, it's not too much worse than this one, right? Yes, right. Which is, okay. but we are, that other, that other thing that we looked at was what happens with each shot. So every time you get your shot, it's like getting COVID all over again from a clinical standpoint. Yeah. And what they're saying is it's, it's on par with this other one, but they're not divulging yeah. or they're not clarifying that what it's on par with is not a great it is also very toxic or just giving you like again we've been saying from day one that natural immunity is you get it you get symptoms your body fights it off and then you have actual immunity to these things so it's like they're ignoring that altogether that they're actually causing sickness in yes, healthy they're people causing, they're causing sickness in healthy people is what they're exactly what they're doing, but they're, but it's okay. Sickness. Cause it's not really sickness. It's only reactogenicity. Okay. <laughs> and, and we've, re and we've compared that reaction genicity to another thing and it's not that much dissimilar. So we're saying it's similar. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. So you see, it's very sneaky wording, but it's misrepresenting safety, right? So somebody yes, at first blush would look at that and say, "Oh, it's no, it's no more say, it's no more toxic than the booster," but they might not know how toxic the booster is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And they they would they would totally miss the fact that five point five percent of those beautiful five year olds that get that get injected with this are going to be so sick that they can't go to school for a week. Yeah, but parents would clear. never think. Yeah. Pe Parents would never think that that's what they're saying when they're saying that they're that they're safe and effective. Or, as you've said, the drug companies are no longer saying that. They're just saying it's as safe as, which mm -hmm. is another way safe, of saying when you it's see, safe. Yeah. When you see the safe as statement, it means mm -hmm. that they're worried about their safety. Right. Is that they recognize it and their lawyers have got their eye on it. So the other thing too, that we really have to keep an eye out, and this has really come to my attention is these local reactions. And, you know, like I'm used to the vaccines and they're like, oh yeah, a little red, a little bit, a little soreness in my arm, but 8% of people who get these shots, according to the data, actually can't use their arm for the seven days following the vaccine. So like it, their arm is so sore that they can't use it. Now that's very different than um, you know, other vaccinations. So I think that that's notable too. I don't usually spend too much time on local reactions. I like to look at the systemic ones, but I think that that's actually a pretty important thing to think about, especially if you're somebody who needs your arm for work or something. Like if you're an athlete or a tradesman or, you know, something along those lines, you'll want to know that for sure. Right. 8% are so sick that they can't, their arms are so sore that they can't use them. So then there's this little table. So here you see it's called S4. And so you have to go to a special place and download supplements. And there are these extra tables that they hide in the back of publications. 
Um, and so what you want to look at is serious adverse events. And serious adverse events require inpatient hospitalization, are life-threatening, result in death or persistent disability parents. So 0.5% in the booster arm and 0.3% in the Omicron arm. But let's just say that it's worst case scenario 0.5%. That's 500 of every 100,000 kids that get these things are going to have inpatient hospitalization, life-threatening, resulting in death or persistent disability. If you look at medically attended, it's 10%, about 10% if you even up those two, will re require some sort of medical attention. That's 10,000 per 100,000 are going to require medical attention based on this. And this is in their own study. This is the safety that they're saying. So whenever our regulatory officials and our people get up and say, hey, these things are safe, you be the judge. Do you think this is safe? If 10,000 per 100,000 require medical attention, are these going to, you know, or 500 per every 100,000 are going to be, you know, require inpatient hospitalization or persistent disability? I would D basically Diana, just argue that that's not safe. Yeah, and just a few things to, because again, the chart is a little bit small for me. Do we have different varying ages here or just anyone? Does this include everyone? Yeah, this is everybody that's in the trial. So greater than 12 years was the, the age range. So it could be okay. anybody from 12 and up. Um, and of course, I think your point is actually on point. It's well taken because we should want to dissect this. Like, who are these people that got sick? And how do we identify them? And how can we protect other people from getting sick, right? These would be really well, great it, questions, it, but, but they're not in the paper. And particularly... You know, we know children are resilient. You know, it, I mm -hmm. would be interested to know if you parse this out, if like 50-year-olds and above, that goes from 10% to 20%. Like that's a – like no, number one, everybody, I'm, I'm a brilliant mathematician, as everyone already knows, but 10,000 per 100,000 is one in 10. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's one in 10. That's not one in 10,000. Mm -hmm. That's one in yeah. 10 require medical attention from these boosters. They're not safe. Deanna, did I get that right? That one in 10? Yeah, you did. Yeah. Yep. One in 10. That's 10%. Yep. And that's what these people are calling safe. Yep. And can you read through the list again? Because again, it, the print is a little bit strong, small. Sure. One in 10 required so I... medical attention. And I think that that means any of the other parts up, up top here can be included in that medical attention, or is that is that even more yeah, severe? It's, than it's what, unclear. What, it's unclear what their categories are, but medical attention means you had to go see a doctor because your 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 reaction was significant enough to require you to say, "I need to see a doctor," right? Right. Um, you know, a friend of mine got an Omicron booster and now has these random rashes that show up on all sorts of different parts of their body, you know, and then go away and then shows up in another part of their body and go in and he's like, you know, has anybody seen this? Like, what is this? You know, so he's like got a, an appointment with his doctor to try and figure out what this is, right? The moment he got the shot, then this has kind of been what's happening ever since hot, red, angry rash, and then it goes away, right? So and, and then that would be somebody who requires medical attention. Okay, and then would the category above, which is serious, is is much more serious. It's it's the ones you know inpatient hospitalization is you you know it's so serious that you're you know for instance myocarditis would be a serious one, 
right? Uh, Life-threatening. That's one in 200. An anaphylactic reaction. Yeah. That's one in 200. Their own study, which is Mm -hmm. short-lived, only observed over seven days. Safety stuff. This back here is 28 days. Yeah. This is over a month. That one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But again, we don't know for six months. We don't know longer. But, you know, I would, I would want zero in serious, not twos and ones. And I don't care if, you know, I wouldn't take either of them if they've got serious adverse events, especially not give them to my healthy children. Certainly. So let's keep going. No, absolutely. Yep. So flaw number five is that they were biased from the start. So if I start to see outcomes like this, where they're minimizing or misrepresenting effectiveness and, uh, misinterpreting effectiveness and misrepresenting safety, I think, where's the pharma influence? So this is a Moderna sponsored trial. So already I know, okay, somebody gave them the money to conduct this trial, right? Um, And here is a little excerpt from the paper. It says, authors who were employees of the sponsor, Moderna, contributed to the design of the study, the collection, the analysis, interpretation of the data, and drafted the manuscript. So when we write publications, we always work with the clinicians and, and, you know, the companies can't be anywhere near it and they can't see their recommendations and they can't be part of what we call content development because, you know, they might be biased towards, uh, you know, misrepresent the data in the sense that they would want to uh, embellish benefits and minimize safety, right? So we basically say you can't be involved in content development. So what this is saying, this text here, is that they were the main drivers in the design, analysis, interpretation, and drafting of the manuscript. So what's emphasized, what's de-emphasized, how they interpreted it, how they... So I'm not sure where the independent authors or doctors were in this whole thing, but basically this is saying that their hand was so into this that they may as well have, you know, that we, we... we can't say for sure that they buy it, that it's biased, but the chance of bias is extremely high. Deanna, where do, just a little when, when you design, when you design normal studies, like I I'm, I'm sure. For, and this will be helpful for our listeners. Like I'm obviously drug companies are interested in having their therapies tested and obviously they're required to have them tested so you would think that normally the big pharma is a part of paying the price for their own drugs to be tested. So how do you get any independence ever? Is it that, is it that, okay, we have, we, so, we, we know yeah, that we have so all they... these drugs to be tested and here you go, independent group. Like, I, like can you just explain that? Cause it, it it seems that they'd be paying for the testing all the way through for every drug. Yeah. So what usually happens is that you have a principal investigator and the principal investigator would be independent and they would be in charge of designing the trial, conducting the analysis and drafting the manuscript. And then the sponsor would be at arm's length, if not provide, you know, participating in a supportive role, right. But not in a lead capacity. What this is saying to me is that it is not clear whether I haven't gone and looked at the authors to see if 
the lead author or the senior author were employees of, of Moderna. But this little excerpt is so damning <laughs> that I don't even need to look very much further because they're basically admitting in there that they're, they're, they basically did this trial. It's, it's a Moderna design interpreted analysis sponsored trial. We wouldn't be right. surprised if the authors are, are employees of Moderna or stakeholders of Moderna, which means that they have a conflict of interest. It means that we can't be guaranteed that what we're seeing here is because they're in the interest of, you know, helping protect people from COVID-19 or uh, working for the interest of their, their, their investors and, you know, trying to sell more drug, right? Because that's their business. Yeah. Their business is to sell more drug. And if you see here, they're actually being very successful because the boss, the Moderna Boston Biotech Company talking about the Q2 earnings, right? So that's three months of the year. They earned $4.7 billion in sales this year in Q2. And that's a 9% increase over last year, right? So whatever the intentions, the result is that they're making a whole heck of a lot of money selling these things. So typically a drug company would have to pay the independent researcher based no matter what they discovered. And that, that, that would be, the, and then that independent research is going to be like, you, you know, those are the types of studies that you would go in and analyze and you would help be, make better or design yourself. But the employees of the company are not working on these studies. Okay. Yeah. So you don't, I mean, I would never, like if I'm interpreting the literature, I would say, okay, who sponsored the trial? And if it's the drug company that sponsored the trial already, I would go, hmm, I'd be, you know, very suspicious. And then if I saw a, a, a little excerpt like that, I would basically say I'm throwing out the trial. Right. I, or I, I expect to see shenanigans, which is what we've seen, right? Yeah. All right. So bias from the start. So just as I was finishing this analysis, Pfizer BioNTech um, released, did a press release with their early clinical trial data for the Omicron BA4, BA5 adapted bivalent booster. Remember the one that was tested on eight mice? Yes. So they, they actually have a trial in the works and they, they did an early press release, which is really interesting because now instead of, you know, data being presented at a conference, for instance, where it could be, you know, uh, challenged Scru by yeah. peers and scrutinized and, all that kind of stuff. Now it's it's just press releases and secret dossiers delivered to regulatory uh, <laughs> groups. But anyways, here they are. Here's a press release. So I thought it would be interesting if um, I just gave you guys a, a quick glimpse at the, the results of this particular trial. So remember, it's a design that was fairly similar. Um, hold on a second. What, am I what was the press here? release? Sorry. What was the press release? You said this is what it is. And then. Yeah, I'm going to show it to you. So oh, okay. they basically, okay. so they, the press release is, I'm just going to zip to that. So this is a BA four or five booster. So just remember how we talked about the other one where it had two, it had the like MRNA BA one and yep. the Wuhan. This one's got BA four, BA five and Wuhan. So any smattering of <laughs> spike proteins is going to be on the outside of this thing. Remember how they can combine together and everything. Yeah. So this is the, I'm just going to skip here. So this is the outcomes of this BA5 trial. So it has 80 patients in it. It's a similar design, right? So it's only looking at the primary Wuhan booster plus 
this B4-5 booster. So that's who the, who that's getting is. is a, the question is, for a fourth booster, is the BA4-5 better than the Wuhan booster is the, the design of this trial. They've looked at 80 people, right? So we're up from eight mice, so that's good. And they only looked at it for seven days and they looked at neutralizing antibody levels. Remember, that's the same as that other one, right? So here it is. So again, lo and behold, once you give the vaccine, you have pre-levels of neutralizing antibodies, they jump up whenever you get your booster, right? So post-booster levels are higher than pre-booster levels in both things. So they're really excited about reporting the outcomes of this particular trial. But interestingly enough, they actually say this. They said in people 55 years and older, remember that the whole premise of their trial is that if the Wuhan, if the Omicron neutralizing antibody levels are higher than the Wuhan, then the study is positive. But they looked at people who are 55 years and older, and they actually found that the, the Wuhan, the neutralizing antibody levels for the Wuhan booster were actually higher than the Omicron booster. But so then basically they just disproved the benefit of their vaccine, the Omicron booster in elderly people. Now, remember that Health Canada has already approved this based on eight mice. And this press release has just shown that based on their own argument, which is that the higher the neutralizing antibody levels, the better, that the Wuhan booster is better than the Omicron booster and anybody who's 55 years and older who are the people who actually need the booster. And you can see here that the, the drug company's wording is very careful. It says these early data suggest, no assertions, that our bivalent vaccine is anticipated to provide better protection against currently circulating variants than the original vaccine and potentially help to curb future surges in cases this winter. Now, what they omitted to say is that their trial was negative. This early sneak peek. <laughs> can't make this stuff up. No, this, I think this is the thing I have a hard time with is that we've talked before. Like I'm, I have a, I have a child with, you know, regularly checked for spina bifida. I, you know, we're thankful for the medical community that I have a child who's a cancer survivor. So when you and I first started talking, you explained to me, you know, how your role would be to come in and look at the studies and work with the cohorts of doctors so that, you know, so that we're studying and that we're, we're offering the best treatments to our patients. It, it, this is like, it's, it's absurdo world. Like I feel like this entire hour and 26 minutes has been one big parody and Deanna's going to say, ha ha, got you. But that's literally what they're saying. They're, they're again, you'd never, we are, we, we suggest we anticipate potential. Yeah. That those are all words for, we have no idea. Or actually, in this case, or or it's looking negative, but we can't better negative. not say it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not looking too good. They didn't say that though. Like, whoa, we should stop because this isn't actually going in the right direction, right? You know, right. adding these mRNA strands of new new variants, which is what this whole experiment is, you know, is either causing more infection with the BA one study from Moderna or not giving you a strong enough reaction at all like you're not you're compromised neutralizing antibodies with with the the omicron ba4 5 booster so something's wrong right their hypothesis is not being proven true i mean yeah it, it in either way 
yeah. their original their original standards of just increased um immunity response or um then that 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 in itself is over 55 years old that's disregarded on its face whether or not it was helpful or not so either way there either mm-hmm. way the, the this works out to be a negative for going and getting a booster yeah and again it says it's favorable safety profile similar to that of the original vaccine they Again, kids, if you want to go, problem. if you want to go play with knives, it's as safe as going playing with razor blades. So, uh, have adder. Well, look, yep. Deanna, let's give everybody a break. Everybody, um, <laughs> oh wait, how how much more of this presentation no, do we no, want to go? This through? is it. This is it. So they asked the wrong question. They assessed the wrong endpoint. They misinterpreted effectiveness, misrepresented safety, and they were biased from the start. And that's it. Sorry, that was that took a while to get through, didn't it? We didn't even it, get to it's that. So, it's so important. Piece. It's so important. And folks, again, I just want you to encourage uh, you to share this with the medical community around you because Deanna's done such a great job in uh, explaining to us the, the, the problem with these studies. Um, okay, so we've gone an hour and a half and we haven't even gotten to the thing I want to talk about. I told you that this was the wrong order, but you were persistent and you wanted no it's good i so deanna explain to me why we just spoke about that and then now why we're gonna have this next conversation and everybody's gonna be able to go take a break and we may air this a day or two later um but just explain to everybody why we had that talk and then now why we're having the next talk so um when you're doing a clinical evaluation the first question you always ask is does it work because if it doesn't work, then you don't take it and, it. and it doesn't matter if it's safe or not. Now, there's a lot of emphasis on, is it safe? And those are good questions. That is a good question. But it's, it's not really a clinically relevant question if it, if it doesn't work. So when, when they're coming along now and they're saying we need to, to protect, you know, we need to guard ourselves against the next wave or the fall, you know, COVID-19, you know, surge, and you need to go out there and get boosted. Well, you know, and I know from looking at this trial data that it's probably more likely to get you sick than it is to protect you based on their own trial data. So I think that we can say that. So the next question is, there's all of this talk about myocarditis, which is a safety issue. And so safety always comes following. So the answer to should you get boosted, even, you know, even if it did cause myocarditis, the answer is no, because it doesn't work. So don't do it, (laughs) right? But if you need another reason, then we'll get into this reason, which is that it is strongly associated with myocarditis. And that's an autoimmune response to spike infiltrated heart muscle. Okay, so so everybody buckle up. We are going to go another hour and a half when we have this talk. (laughs) And... Again, these are some really important conversations. So everybody, thank you for listening to this hour and a half. And if you are going to stick around with us or you're going to listen to these back to back, go for it. But we're going to break up this video right now here and stay tuned for the next video coming out really soon after this one. And we're going to talk about myocarditis.